0: Hello everyone, this is Jorge Fascinetti, and you are listening to another exclusive podcast from Pituitary World News. In today's podcast, Dr. Lewis Blevins reviews pituitary function tests and the things taken into consideration in the interpretation of these results. Here's Dr. Blevins. This is Dr. Lewis Blevins podcasting from Redwood City, California this evening. Today I would like to talk about pituitary function tests and some of the things that uh, we take into consideration when interpreting the results. I was prompted to do this podcast because the COVID-19 situation and the increased amount of telemedicine visits has led to a, a majority of patients having laboratory studies done in advance of the visit instead of at the conclusion of the visit. There are a lot of different pros and cons of this approach um, and I won't go into those at this time. uh, But one of the things that uh, has become readily apparent is that oftentimes patients see their test results before the provider has a chance to see them and review them So, patients often have very specific uh, and well-pointed questions about those results, what they mean, how to interpret them, and uh, whether or not they require any changes in therapy. There are a lot of caveats that uh, come into play when interpreting these results and making treatment decisions, and I hope to share with you some of the things that uh, we as physicians think about when reviewing these test results. Interestingly, many of these caveats aren't understood by even seasoned general physicians, uh, and uh, they are rather difficult, and um, you're not gonna find any clear answers on the internet, so hopefully this will help you uh, understand your test results, and have uh, more appropriate and meaningful conversations with your physicians at the time of the telemedicine visit. There's a lot to cover, so let's just dive right in. So, a couple of things you need to do about tests that are performed uh, to evaluate pituitary function. First off, they're usually done with radioimmunoassay or some related technique. And there are different ways to measure all of the different hormones, but... Uh, uh, the, the bottom line is that most of these tests have what we call inter- and intra-assay coefficients of variation. And basically what that means is that uh, there's variability in the results as a, an artifact of the way these tests are performed. For example, you can take any test, TSH, T4, whatever test you want to use, and you can take the, the tube of blood from the patient and run it 10 different times and get 10 different results and that coefficient of variation may vary in the middle of the test range as much as 5% on the edges of the test uh, normal range as <clears throat> as much as 15 to 20%. This uh, same tube of blood could be tested in 10 different laboratories and you'll get 10 different results. That's another coefficient of variation. And as a result of these coefficients of variation, you, you might see that as a physician, I might not really worry too much about a test result that's a little different. Say a prolactin one time is 15, and another time it's 7, and another time it's 19. That's probably within some of the variation of the assay. Also taking into account that many of these pituitary hormones are secreted in a pulsatile fashion, and levels aren't just simply stable throughout the day. Sometimes you're going to get the test drawn when you are having a pulse in the secretion of a hormone. Other times it's going to be drawn when the the pituitary was quiescent in its secretion. So this is probably the main reason we don't make a big deal uh, about some minor variations in the numbers from one test time to the next. Another thing to keep in mind is that some peptides, especially ACTH and arginine vasopressin, are degraded by peptidases in blood, so if the tube is drawn and sits in the lab before it's assayed, you might actually see a low hormone result as a consequence of that process. Uh, So it used to be that ACTH and vasopressin were drawn in special tubes and put on ice to prevent that degradation, but I don't think that happens all the time. So clearly one has to be mindful of this uh, potential artifact, if you will, in the uh, measurement of hormones and the fact that you might not actually be seeing a hormone level that's entirely accurate because of that degradation. There are certain things that can interfere with some assay results. Biotin is the greatest big example. It seems like a lot of patients these days are taking biotin for one reason or another. And uh, we tend to recommend that patients withhold it two weeks before they have blood drawn. I've seen several cases where the biotin use has actually influenced the test results. When we stop the biotin, we see the results reflecting the adequacy of therapy. We also consider the concept of a normal range. Um, Most of you who have looked at your own laboratory studies would see that you have a normal range associated with each test result. Now, we don't know what's normal for you. Uh, The normal range reflects the normal range derived from a patient population. Different laboratories have used different sizes. We don't really know how large those sizes were. Some normal ranges are even related to age differences. But the thing to keep in mind is that normal range encompasses 95 percent of normal or non-diseased patients. Patients who have disease can still be in the normal range of a particular laboratory assay. For example, if the normal range of IGF-1, for example, for age is uh, 75 to, say, 320, and you're supposed to be at 275, but you have a result of 120, even though it's normal, you might actually have growth hormone deficiency. And that's why we would do stimulation tests, even in patients who have normal IGF-1 levels. So if you actually took a patient, whether you're looking at T4, IGF-1, prolactin, or whatever, and did enough samples, you would find that we all have our own little normal ranges. Uh, Unfortunately, we don't know what our individual normal ranges are before we get a disease state because we don't try to determine that for the hundreds and hundreds of laboratory studies that can be done. Um, So laboratory tests have to be interpreted in conjunction with symptoms and signs and what the pretest probability of something being truly abnormal might be. For example, if you have no evidence of pituitary disease and have an abnormal test result, that might simply be normal for you. You may be one of the 5% of people that's outside the normal range who's still normal. But if you have a pituitary tumor, the pretest probability of that result being abnormal is greater, uh, so it's taken more seriously. And that's what Bayesian theory and statistics is all about. So we take into account where a patient's labs are in the normal range based on what we expect and some of the other factors that are going on uh, with the patient. For example, a patient who has multiple pituitary hormone deficiencies already but has another test that's in the low part of the normal range, we might presume that that low normal is probably too low for the patient. classic example would be a patient who has evidence for growth hormone deficiency and hypogonadism, who has a low normal T4 and complains of fatigue. Even though the growth hormone deficiency and the hypogonadism are treated, that fatigue might be related to mild hypothyroidism. Even though the T4 is in the low part of the normal range, it's normal, but it might be too low for that patient. So it's important to understand what a normal range really truly means and how it's interpreted by pituitary endocrinologists, and hopefully I've made that a little bit more clear for you. I think the next thing to cover is that uh, when we evaluate pituitary functions, we do checks sometimes not only of pituitary hormones, but also uh, of the target gland hormones, and you can think of these as groupings, and I'll talk about them as groupings. One group for exa- grouping, for example, is uh, the thyroid axis, so we can check TSH, T4, and T3 levels. We'll get to that later. Um, Keep in mind these pituitary hormones are secreted in pulses. Some hormones are secreted mostly when we're sleeping at night, growth hormone being the classic example of that. Uh, And uh, some of these pulses are 8 to 10 pulses a day. Some are 15 to 16. Uh, Levels between pulses can be uh, pretty low or low normal. Levels, even at the peak of a pulse, can be high. Uh, So, for example, Uh, If we look at FSH levels, I've had patients say, well, my FSH the last time we checked it was 8, this time it's 20. What does that mean? Well, this is just the normal pulsatility and the variation in their FSH. Uh, And um, we'll talk more about FSH later, but that's used as an example to explain that these hormones are secreted in a pulsatile fashion, and we have to interpret them in conjunction with symptoms, signs, and target gland hormones. We can't just look at a pituitary hormone and make an inference about whether or not a hormone is either elevated or too low. We have to look at everything in conjunction with one another. So let's turn our attention now to the different hormone groupings, if you will, or the pituitary and uh, glandular axes. The first one is the thyroid axis. The pituitary makes TSH that drives the production of T4 and T3 by the thyroid gland. Uh, T4 is converted in the liver and the kidney to T3, and T3 is the business end of the molecule. All you really need is to have a TSH, a T4, and a T3. You don't need reverse T3 levels and all this other uh, nonsense about different testing that I have seen uh, on Facebook and other groups Um really come come to light over the past few years it's really not necessary and most thyroidologists would agree uh, so don't get caught up in the um, um, pandemic if you will of misinformation that's out there uh, for practical purposes all you need is a t4 a t3 and a TSH and if somebody ever tells you your thyroid hormone levels are normal but it looks like you have hypothyroidism and need thyroxin you better make sure that you really have hypothyroidism before you start treatment, because treatment can be dangerous. When it comes to pituitary disease, TSH can be biologically inactive, so even though it's detectable in the bloodstream, it might not be a functional molecule, and that's why you can end up with hypothyroidism uh, as a result of pituitary disease. The other thing is that the TSH isn't secreted in the right mass of TSH in a 24-hour period. So even the level is normal in the five-second biopsy of when the blood was drawn, 24-hour uh, TSH secretion might be markedly low, and that can lead to hypothyroidism as well. But the pituitary is diseased, uh, and TSH is not reliable. The levels aren't reliable, so we have to look at the target gland, and we check T4 and T3 levels. and uh, We interpret them in conjunction with the same... Uh, concepts about what the normal range means and how the assays are done and all of that uh, information I discussed earlier in this podcast. But we also pay attention to symptoms, whether a patient has symptoms of hypothyroidism. Uh, when we're thinking about central hypothyroidism, where they have symptoms of hyperthyroidism, if we're thinking about whether they're overtreated with thyroxin or if they have a TSH-producing pituitary adenoma. So all of those uh, things are taken in conjunction with one another. One important takeaway is that uh, if you have central hypothyroidism and take thyroxine, you cannot use the TSH to determine whether or not the dose is appropriate. One of the most common mistakes that I see primary physicians make is that they'll see a pituitary patient. The T4 and the T3 will be normal. The TSH will be low because the patient has pituitary disease. And the doctor lowers the dose of thyroid hormone because if the patient was missing a thyroid and the pituitary was okay, you would use the TSH to determine the thyroid dose. And if the TSH was low, you would lower the dose. But it's a mistake to do so in a pituitary patient. So make sure you educate your physicians not to make those uh, assessments. We don't want inappropriate discontinuance or lowering of medications in patients who've been appropriately treated with thyroid hormone. Now, when it comes to hyperthyroidism due to pituitary adenoma secreting TSH, we can see elevated T4 and T3 levels in the presence of inappropriately normal or even slightly elevated TSH levels. And In patients who have the TSH-producing adenomas, the TSH is more biologically active, and there's more mass of the hormone secreted in a 24-hour period. Sometimes we check the alpha subunit of the pituitary hormones and do some calculations to confirm a case of hyperthyroidism due to pituitary adenoma. The next axis I would like to talk about is the pituitary adrenal axis. And in that setting, you might see that we will occasionally check an ACTH and or a cortisol level. Um, Just as in the thyroid axis, the ACTH can be either normal or low in central adrenal insufficiency, Uh, or it can be normal or high in patients who have Cushing's. We often look at cortisol levels to get an idea of uh, what the cortisol secretion might be, but again, we're only getting a five-second biopsy, so it's hard to tell and make a lot of sense of cortisol levels. I find it most useful to check cortisol levels at 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. if we're going to check them. Uh, If there's a concern about adrenal insufficiency, a cortisol level less than 5 is almost always diagnostic. A cortisol higher than 12 is probably normal, meaning that you don't require steroids. Anything in between probably needs a low-dose ACTH stimulation test to confirm whether or not pituitary adrenal function is normal. And I prefer the low-dose ACTH stimulation test over the traditional ACTH stimulation test to make that determination. When there's a concern of cortisol excess, we often measure the 24-hour urine cortisol or the overnight one milligram dexamethasone suppression test can be performed. Uh, And then you can also do salivary cortisol levels, uh, usually at uh, 11 p.m. or before the patient's bedtime if people have an altered sleep-wake cycle timing. Uh, And then you can also do salivary cortisol levels throughout the day and at night to look for loss of diurnal variation when you're evaluating for Cushing syndrome. Next, we'll talk about growth hormone secretion. So growth hormone secretion uh, in excess is a disorder known as acromegaly. Uh, Deficiency is simply called growth hormone deficiency. In patients suspected of having acromegaly, growth hormone levels themselves aren't great uh, in the diagnosis, but we always check them because we want to follow them as there are some survival data and mortality and survival data, rather, that uh, look at... uh, survival related to growth hormone levels, and we like to know where a patient sits on those levels after surgery, so it's nice to have the baseline preoperative levels. But what's more important is the IGF-1 level, which is an indicator of the growth hormone secretion over time. IGF-1 is one of those hormones where uh, it can be measured in different methodologies and in different laboratory studies, and in my experience, the Quest laboratory assay is the best assay to use to measure IGF-1. It's the one that I like to use to make treatment decisions in my patients. Um, We um, still check the growth hormone levels, but the IGF-1 is the key in acromegaly. In patients who have acromegaly, we like to see the IGF-1 level normalized. The middle of the normal range is better than the high part of the normal range. Um, we like to see growth hormone levels less than 1. If a glucose tolerance test is performed, we like to see the growth hormone level less than 0.4. IGF-1 is only about 75% accurate in diagnosing growth hormone deficiency, and growth hormone levels are practically useless in that setting because... Most of us make most of our growth hormone while we're sleeping at night, and about 50% of adults will have undetectable growth hormone levels during the day anyways. So if I see an undetectable growth hormone level, I don't really pay much attention to it. I look at that IGF-1 level. I tend to like to do further testing in patients who have IGF-1 levels that are in the lower quarter of the normal range if they haven't been screened for growth hormone deficiency. And the best stimulation test is the glucagon stimulation test. There are other stimulation tests, but I think the glucagon is the one that's the most widely used. There are other tests that are available with the well-defined uh, parameters. Every single test has its own cutoffs. Uh, some of the old uh, standard tests used to be said uh, to be abnormal if the growth hormone levels were less than 5, over 5 being normal. Uh, I've done enough of these tests to know that the Cutoff of 5 is still probably useful for most patients with documented pituitary disease and thus a high pretest probability of having growth hormone deficiency. So I tend to use 5 a lot. In some uh, studies, levels as uh, low as 3 and 2.1 have been used in cut, as, as cutoffs, and the 2.1 even in patients who have uh, obesity. Um, I don't find those cutoffs to be very useful or helpful in patients who have defined pituitary disease, especially when there are other pituitary deficiencies, and I've seen a few examples of patients who had growth hormone levels, say, of 3 to 3.2, who by some physicians wouldn't have been treated for growth hormone deficiency, even though they had uh, complete hypopituitarism and then when i treat them with growth hormone using the cutoff of five they have a dramatic response to treatment so i think a cutoff of five seems to be most appropriate when that pretest test probability for growth hormone deficiency is pretty high next i would like to talk about gonadal function in, in men and in this setting we usually check lh and fsh and then total and free testosterone levels the lh and fsh are the pituitary hormones they're more helpful if it's elevated, because that would suggest a testicular problem. Uh, in men who have hypogonadism, they can either be low or normal, but if they're not secreted in a coordinated function or not biologically active, the actual radioimmunoassay immunoassay level is not very helpful. But we still check them, because it can give us some insights into whether or not the hypogonadism is due to pituitary disease or something else. The total testosterone used to be the most commonly used test, but Testosterone is carried in the blood on proteins known as albumin and sex-hormone-binding globulin. And there are lots of different things, including genetic conditions, that can alter sex-hormone-binding globulin levels and change the total testosterone. For example, someone could have a sex-hormone-binding globulin deficiency or a genetically low level and have a low total testosterone, even though they had no sexual dysfunction. If you checked their free testosterone level, you would find out that was normal. So we always like to see what the free testosterone level is uh, because that's more reflective of the testosterone that's available to the tissues that's not bound to proteins. Most assays, when you check a a free testosterone, they'll also give you the total testosterone. Some actually give you a sex hormone binding globulin level. Others will also give you what's called a bioavailable testosterone, which correlates well with the free testosterone level. But the levels mostly help us detect patients who have hypogonadism. Symptoms and signs are important here as well. Uh, and uh, levels do change with age, and oftentimes it's difficult to try to determine exactly where a patient's testosterone level should be. So we go well on symptoms and signs. However, uh, we do have our cutoffs. So men who have very high testosterone levels due to treatment. Uh, If they still have hypogonadism, it's usually not related to the testosterone level. It's usually psychological. Gonadal function in women uh, is uh, perhaps uh, more importantly assessed by the history. Women who are of uh, menstrual age, uh, if they're having normal menses, it's really irrelevant to check the hormone levels. In this day and age, we often don't have that information uh, because we're getting labs before the telemedicine visit. But uh, prior to telemedicine, when we were seeing patients in the clinic and then ordering labs, if a woman told me she was having normal menstrual cycles, I wouldn't bother to check LH and FSH and estradiol levels. We would just assume that since the menses are normal, gonadal function is normal. Because normal regular menses means someone's ovulating and that means the pituitary and the ovaries are working fine together. But we check these levels. LH and FSH are secreted in a pulsatile fashion. They are perhaps more helpful in determining pituitary adequacy in postmenopausal women because after menopause, LH and FSH levels are elevated. So if they're inappropriately normal or low in a postmenopausal woman, that tells me that her pituitary function is not entirely normal. So it raises the flag to look for other pituitary deficiencies. In women of menstrual age, we will sometimes check them, because sometimes people have premature menopause for one reason or another. I had a a case last week of a young woman who had markedly elevated levels, probably because she has antibodies against her ovaries. So we have to check these levels. Uh, But what's also important is the estradiol level and sometimes a progesterone level. Well, if we have a woman who's having menses that are somewhat regular, we'll often check progesterone levels to see if they've ovulated or, or are in the luteal phase of their menstrual cycle. I'll include prolactin determinations here because I consider that to be, well, it's a separate pituitary hormone, whole different problem when we're looking at hyperprolactinemia. Uh, some of the same things that I had said earlier about pulsatility, Laboratory variations, etc., do apply here. Um, we often check macroprolactin levels if we see an elevated prolactin in someone with normal menses and no galacteria. Uh Macroprolactin is a complex prolactin with antibodies, where a patient has antibodies against prolactin uh, as an autoimmune disorder, so to speak, and those clumps of prolactin and antibodies aren't cleared by the kidneys very well so it accumulates in the bloodstream and can elevate the prolactin but doing a macro prolactin assay allows us to determine what the real true prolactin level uh, might be in a particular patient in this setting some prolactin assays don't detect very high levels of prolactin unless the sample is diluted so sometimes we have to either dilute the prolactin or do the the prolactin in an assay that has a, a high linearity where you really detect high levels, and at UCSF we have such an assay that's good to about 4,000 before we have to do the dilutions. Some labs you have to do dilution if you think the prolactin might be over 200 because it can be artificially read as normal even when it's high. So for example, a woman who has a prolactinoma and no menses, has breast milk, could have a prolactin that reads 15 when it's really 170 or 200 or 250 or whatever, if the lab didn't do the dilutions but does one of the old prolactin radioimmunoassays, as do many small hospital laboratories. So uh, we have to keep that in mind as physicians as well. When it comes to looking at prolactin deficiency, the, the real clinical core layer there is of a woman has uh, delivered a child and can't breastfeed, we are concerned that she might have prolactin deficiency uh, due to Sheehan syndrome or some other disorders such as lymphocytic hypophysitis, that has lowered prolactin levels. In patients who take dopamine agonist drugs to treat their hyperprolactinemia, uh, I, I think all physicians have different targets. Uh, some of my patients, I'm happy if their level's under 30. Others, I want it under 20. Still others, especially those with bigger aggressive tumors, I want it under 10, uh, and I think that it's important to recognize that uh, uh, when you have a prolactin check, just work with your doctor to find out what the goal might be uh, to manage the particular condition that you have. Discussion of diabetes insipidus and water deprivation testing and vasopressin levels and other things that can be done is really beyond the scope of this podcast, we've addressed diabetes insipidus, in several other publications and podcasts, so I would refer you to those. Uh, But that's about it for this uh, discussion on how you might interpret your laboratory test results. Uh, We love it when patients ask us questions, Um, and many times I give patients the very same explanations that I have given throughout this podcast to try to help those of you who do like to look at your laboratory studies to understand them. Uh, I hope that you recognize that it's not an exact science. It does require a lot of experience and a lot of understanding, not only about pituitary physiology, but target gland physiology, uh, how hormones are carried in the bloodstream, how they're cleared by different organs, uh, and uh, and the like, to make a determination of whether a level is too high or too low or just right for a particular individual. And then we have different goals depending on different disease states whether a gland is hyperfunctioning or hypofunctioning, and uh, whether we're treating to lower a hormone or to raise a hormone. Um, but uh, we encourage you to learn as much as you can about your disease state and the laboratory tests that you're submitting yourself for. And uh, once again, I hope that this discussion has helped you along your journey uh, of being a, an informed patient and being ready to have uh, real positive discussions with your provider. Uh, again, Dr. Lewis Blevins, podcasting from Redwood City. Um, I hope that you have a great rest of your day, and I want to say happy holidays to everyone during this uh, end of the year.